0: So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verses 32 to 52. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. Salvation is through sacrifice salvation is through sacrifice in fact it's one of the themes that you probably noticed in the movie the great movie Avengers Endgame it's one of my favorite movies (laughs) y'all but this theme is definitely prevalent and evident in Avengers Endgame you see in Avengers Infinity Wars the Avengers they fought Thanos and they were defeated. And in the movie, Doctor Strange makes known that there's only one way that they would defeat Thanos and save the world. If you fast forward to and you watch the movie Endgame, you would see that the way that they would save the world would be through sacrifice. First, the sacrifice of Black Widow, and then the sacrifice of Tony Stark. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie when he gets the Infinity Stones, places them into his little glove, and he snaps his fingers, and everyone is saved. Thanos is defeated, and the thing is that this salvation, it came at the price of his own life. And though a movie, that scene and theme points us to the reality that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he brought about an infinitely and eternally greater salvation than any movie could ever depict. And it was through him giving up his life for us. And that is what we will see in this morning's passage. And so Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52, please stand the reading of God's word to honor the word. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, "'Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you.' "'What do you want me to do for you?' he asked them. They answered him, "'Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory.' Jesus said to them, "'You don't know what you're asking.'" Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of God, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately, he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. You may be seated. So our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Jesus saves through sacrificial service. Jesus saves through sacrificial service. I have three points from this passage. and It's all centered about what Jesus does. The first section, we'll see Jesus suffers. Second, we'll see Jesus serves. And third, Jesus saves. Jesus suffers, he serves, and he saves. So, our first point Jesus suffers. Look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed were afraid. Taking the 12 aside, he began to tell them the things that will happen to him. And so Jesus and his disciples, they are traveling, and Mark explicitly makes known their destination. Jerusalem, the holy city. They are going up because Jerusalem is 3,500 feet above elevation. And Jesus, he heads to Jerusalem because it is where he will fulfill his mission of saving us by suffering for our sins. You see, Jesus, he purposely leads the way while the disciples were astonished and afraid This astonishment and fear isn't because where they are going, but because who they are following. They are astounded and fearful of Jesus as he leads them. He takes the 12 aside, and it says he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. This is Jesus' third passion prediction and the most detailed of the three. He reveals what will happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. And did you notice the certainty That Jesus speaks with. He says the son of man will be handed over. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. You see, Jesus knows. Every minute detail of what will happen to him is no surprise to him at all. He knows what will happen, how it will happen, who will be involved, and how it ends. You see, though sinless, he will be condemned by religious leaders, considered a curse and handed over to the Gentiles, where he will be humiliated and then executed through crucifixion. But then he will rise from the dead. You see, Jesus knows all of this because this was predestined by God the Father. The plan dates back to before the foundation of the world. You see, before God said, let there be, he planned the Son's suffering for our salvation. This doesn't happen apart from God's will, but it's predestined so that men and women can be saved. Acts chapter 2 verses 22 and 20, 23 and 24 says though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. And in this passion prediction we see who is responsible for Jesus' death. Did you catch it? It's both Jews and Gentiles. The religious leaders The Jews condemned him, and the Gentiles executed him. And behold, the humility of the Son of God and his humiliation. He says that he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. You see, the one who created man's mouth allowed man to mock and jeer at him. The one who breathed life into man allowed man to use their breaths to spit in his face. The one who gives man strength allowed man to scourge him and nail him to the cross. The author of life let man put him to death. He who created man suffers at the hands of men so that he may save them. See in this section Jesus he emphasizes his suffering. And as brutal as this suffering is, what he suffered on the cross is infinitely and eternally worse. You see for on the cross Jesus bore God's wrath for our sins and he died. And though he suffered. Beloved, notice how it will end. It says, and he will rise after three days. Resurrection. Death doesn't have the final word. He rose victoriously. All who are in Christ are saved. And beloved, we we do not worship a dead Jesus, but a risen Lord. A dead Jesus saves no one, but the resurrected Lord saves all who trust in him. And if this happens to Jesus... What will come of his followers? Well, we too will suffer. Our suffering will be for Jesus. You see here, Jesus blazes the trail for all of his followers. The pattern of the Christian life is suffering, death, and resurrection. There are no exceptions. Beloved, if we are faithfully following Christ, we too will suffer for him. And when suffering for Christ, may we remind one another of how it will end for us. Resurrection. Because we are united to Christ, our resurrection with Christ is as sure as our suffering for Christ. You see, our Savior, he suffered for our salvation and we will suffer for his name's sake. And in this section... Jesus is emphasizing his suffering that awaits him. He suffers. That's not all that happens. Now let's look at the second point where we see that Jesus serves. You see, though Jesus tells the twelve of his impending suffering and resurrection, two of them only paid attention to the phrase, we are going up to Jerusalem. You see, they have assumptions of what will happen, and so they see this as an opportunity for self-exaltation. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. (laughs) You see, it's pretty funny. (laughs) What a strange way to preface a request. It's like they're trying to get Jesus to agree to write them a blank check. And after he agrees, they will disclose the amount. You see, what they're doing here is asking the Lord himself to submit to their wills. And before we look down on them, is this not our disposition at times in prayer? We say your will be done, but we really want our wills to be done. And in fact, God knows that some of our prayer requests are motivated by selfishness. James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask that you may spend it on your passions. You see, some of our prayer requests, just as James and John's requests, it's not for God's glory, but solely for our own. And praise God that he don't grant them. Because if he did, we would be further away from him. Look how Jesus responded. What do you want me to do for you? Asked them. Verse 37, they answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. You see, they know that Jesus is the Messiah and believe that he's about to go to Jerusalem and consummate the kingdom and reign as the Davidic king. And they want prominent seats in Jesus' glory. You see, they want to be exalted with Jesus Christ. They're not trying to be used by Jesus for his glory, but rather they want to use Jesus for their own glory. See, it's not what we see in John 3.30 that I must decrease and he must increase. Instead, it's I want to increase as he increases. And beloved, because we're in this body of flesh, we can be the same way. We want to be exalted And we will use anyone and anything towards that end. Even Christ, the gospel, and the spiritual gifts that we receive. You see, some may preach, sing, and serve solely for the exaltation of self. Whether it's sermons or social media posts, it could be all for our own glory. Paul is fully aware that that can happen, and he makes it known in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 and 17, where he says, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some do it out of selfish ambition. You see, for some of us, we don't mind Jesus being exalted as long as we're exalted with him. And beloved, if this is our mindset, then it is not Jesus who we are serving But ourselves. You see, it's impossible to serve Jesus and simultaneously exalt ourselves. It's not Jesus who we're serving, but us. Instead, it's Jesus who we're using. And the question for us to consider is not are we tempted to exalt ourselves, but where are we tempted to exalt ourselves? Wherever we are tempted to do this, may we put this to death by God's spirit. May we confess it to others that one another, may be, that the saints may be praying for us in this and checking in on us. May we resist our flesh. Look at how Jesus responded. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? You see, they don't understand the magnitude of what Jesus will experience before he is exalted. You see, the road to glory is not a parade. You don't ride afloat to it. Rather, suffering precedes glory. He bears the cross before he wears the crown. He asked them, pretty much, are you able to experience the suffering that he will experience? This baptism and this cup. And the question he asks, it implies that he is submitting to the will of God. This cup and baptism is God's doing. They are specifically tailored for Jesus because of who he is. He is the Christ, the suffering servant who saves through sacrificing himself for our sins. First he asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? You see, what is this cup? This cup is not a cup of blessing, but a cup of judgment. It's the cup of God's wrath against human sin, The Old Testament talks about this cup of divine wrath. Psalm chapter 75, verse 8. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink it, draining it to the dregs. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. You see, God has a cup of wrath that he will pour out on sinners. And by having this cup, we witness God's justice. Sin provokes God's holy wrath. And he cannot, nor will he wink at sin, nor will he ignore it. He must punish it. He condemns sinners for sinning against him. You see, this cup of wrath, it serves as a testimony that the wicked will not escape judgment. No one gets away with their sins. God records it in his book, and he will judge There's also a baptism that Jesus will undergo. He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? You see, Jesus will also be baptized where he is submerged in the waters of God's judgment, not for his sin because he is the sinless one, but for our sin. This baptism, it depicts Jesus' solidarity with sinners and that he will bear our condemnation. Luke chapter 12, verse 50 says, But I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. You see, through this cup and this baptism, we see that Jesus will be punished for our rebellion. We read about it in the scripture reading where it says, And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And it's through this sacrifice that we behold God's mercy and his love for sinners like us. That he sent his only son to bear our sin. Beloved, there's no greater way than God showed his love for us and that he sent his son to suffer on our behalf, to bear God's judgment. You see, this cup and this baptism is specifically tailored for Jesus. No one else could bear this judgment and survive. Yet, these brothers think otherwise. Jesus asked this question. Can they drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that he will undergo? And they said that we are able. Their response is foolishness at best and arrogance at worst to believe that they can experience such suffering. You see, a proper understanding of God and his wrath and our own sin and who Jesus is would have resulted in a completely different answer. They'd be like, absolutely not. Look how Jesus responded. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But the sit in my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You see, Jesus tells them that they will suffer, but their suffering will not be like how he suffered. You see, this cup and this baptism that they will experience is not the same that Jesus experienced. Jesus suffered to atone for sins. They and all who follow Jesus, we will suffer for his name's sake. James and John, they indeed suffered for Christ. In Acts chapter 12, we see that James was beheaded, and church history records that though John the apostle died peacefully, he suffered immensely for Christ's sake. And though they suffered, it is the Father's prerogative to choose who will sit at Jesus' right and left. God has reserved those seats, and if they're not for us, we can't take them. Ain't no seat swapping in glory. (laughs) But here Jesus makes known again that his followers will suffer for his behalf. You see, to follow Jesus is to sign up for a lifetime of persecution. He made that known in chapter 10, verse 30, where he says, whoever follows me, they will experience persecution. You see, following Jesus and preaching the true gospel doesn't guarantee material prosperity, but physical persecution. You're not guaranteed health or wealth. In fact, those very things may be taken from you on Christ's account for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 41 and 42. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. You see the ten? They're angry at Jesus. And their anger is not this righteous indignation. Instead, they are mad because they wanted the very same thing. They just didn't go that route to try to get it. And what Jesus does is he uses this as a teaching opportunity. He instructs them on humility and service. Tells them that those who are guarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, or whoever wants to be great, whoever wants to be first, will be a slave to all. You see, some leaders abuse their authority and rule with a heavy hand. They see themselves as better than others and act as if others are beneath them. They flaunt their authority. And that didn't just happen back then, but those things still happen today. And it's because authority is ab- it's one of the reasons why many people have problems with authority today. It's not the only reason. People have problems with authority because we're sinners. But one of the reasons why people have problem with authority is because authorities have been abused. You see, authority isn't a bad thing in and of itself. It's good. It derives from God and should result in human flourishing. But now, because sin, authority can be and has been abused and resulted in oppression. And we see this everywhere. We hear of more and more cases of the abuse of authority, from police brutality to directors in Hollywood, where they abuse their authority and think that they can do whatever they want to whoever they want. They serve no one but themselves at the expense of others. And sadly, it can also happen in the church. In 2018, Hundreds of cases of abuse and scandals were reported among Southern Baptist churches. Men, women, and children were abused by pastors, ministry leaders, and members. Beloved, these things should not be so among the people of God. Especially in the church, where God's saving rule and reign has been manifested on earth. By God's grace, we've been called out of the world, and so we should not look like the world. We're citizens of God's kingdom, and so that should be evident, especially in how we steward authority. Jesus says, it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first Will be a slave to all. You see, in God's kingdom, worldly values are turned on its head. You see, Jesus, He doesn't oppose the desire for greatness, He redirects them to what it looks like in God's kingdom. You see, in God's kingdom, greatness isn't achieved through oppression, but through service. If your goal is greatness, your plan is humble service. And the apostles, they were to be servant leaders. They were to lead the church. And as they lead the church, the church weren't to be their servants. Rather, they were to be servants for the church. They are to serve the church with preaching the gospel. And now in the church, there are two offices, elders and deacons. And both elders and deacons are servants and leaders. As one pastor says, the elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. And as your elders, Pastor John and myself, we are to serve with leading by preaching the word and shepherding the flock. And we are to do so with humility as examples we are to not lord our authority over you guys that is instructed by the apostle peter in 1 peter chapter 5 verses 1 to 3 instead like paul says in 2 corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus sake we are to be servant leaders and that should not just be through the offices, but also the church are to be servants. The church is to serve. We're in love. We serve one another. Beloved, we are constantly view ourselves as servants. We shouldn't consider ourselves to be above any person or any task. You see, in God's kingdom, there are no big eyes or little you's. We are to consider others as more important than ourselves. Not just our friends or members we like. Not just those who look like us or those who are in the same season as us. We are to be impartial in our service. Beloved, is that true of you? You see, this exhortation is challenging because we wage war with the flesh. In our flesh... We think that we deserve to be served, so we don't want to serve others. And we're also tempted to make distinctions according to the flesh and decide who is worthy of our service. To the point to where if we have to be servants, sadly, we would rather be selective on who we choose to serve. And this is why we must die to ourselves daily. Daily. We must kill our pride and humble ourselves and serve others, following our Savior and how he served us. And it's what we see in verse 45, that Christ is our chief example and standard of humility and service. Verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the Lord Jesus, he declares that he is practicing what he is preaching, He described his mission in terms of service. He is the Son of Man, the Messianic King in Daniel chapter 7, and he is among them as a servant. His advent was not that people may serve him, but that he may serve them. You see, normally, the inferior serves the superior, but the king came to serve his people. You see, people who Work for the president normally say, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Well, the Son of God came to serve for the benefits of his people. Chapter 10, verse 45 is the theme of Mark's gospel. He has served by his mighty acts as he is bringing restoration to what sin has ruined. And he will ultimately serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus sacrificed himself in the place of sinners. He gave his life as a ransom. Now, what is a ransom? It's an economic term. It is the price one pays to free or deliver someone from bondage, to cover a payment. And what has happened is that sin has been committed by man. And we are under God's wrath and held in bondage to sin. And we can't free ourselves. No amount of money or good works that we can do to free ourselves. Instead, we need to be freed. We need to be redeemed. And Christ Jesus is the Savior who came to ransom us. He purchased us by his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. He is the suffering servant who loved us and gave himself for us. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. You see, we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God's wrath has been satisfied and we are no longer under wrath or slaves to sin because of what Christ has done for us. Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Christ, he died for the sins of the elect. Those who the Father chose before the foundation of the world, both Jews and Gentiles. His death and resurrection secures our salvation. Isaiah chapter 53, again, talks about it. Verse 11 and 12, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give them the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Christ died for us. We will sing of it in Revelation chapter 5 where we say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, for he ransomed a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. As we sung earlier, Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. Our king served us by ransoming us with his very own blood. Beloved, oh, what amazing love. And if you're not a Christian, I am glad you're here. Friends, I want you to get this. Normally, it is appropriate and good for the inferior to serve the superior. As I said earlier, citizens serve their leaders. Yet in the gospel, we see the Son of God serving man, the Supreme One dying for the sins of those he created, for the sins of those who have sinned against him. He sacrificed himself, bearing God's judgment, dying three days later, and he saves all who turn from their sin and trust in him. Friends, I would implore you this very day, turn from your rebellion, trust in Jesus Christ, and be saved. If you want to know more, if you're comfortable, you can talk with any of our members after service. We love to have these type of conversations. See, beloved... Christ's death for our sins is our example and standard of humility and service. We are to imitate him, his sacrificial service for us. If Jesus could humble himself and die for our sins, we shouldn't consider ourselves above any task. In fact, it's the way that we show love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And in response to that, that is how we show love, because he says, so we are to lay down our lives for the brothers. So may we imitate our Savior by sacrificially laying down our life to serve one another. Now let's go to our third and final point where we see that Jesus saves. Jesus and his disciples, they are still heading to Jerusalem. Look at verse 46 on down, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, Jesus, he is in Jericho, which is about 18 miles outside of Jerusalem, still heading to Jerusalem, and he is followed by his disciples in a large crowd. And suddenly we are introduced to a blind man named Bartimaeus. We don't know how he became blind or how long he has been blind. What we do know is that he is blind and he is by the road and he heard footsteps. He knows that there's a large crowd walking. And he heard the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And did you see how he responded? He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, he confesses Jesus to be the son of David. This is the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus is referred to as the son of David. And Bartimaeus' confession gives us a window into what he believes about Jesus. He believed Jesus to be the Messiah who will sit on David's throne. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God made a covenant with David that he would have a son sit on his throne forever. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6 says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration where I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is his name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, the Jews, they anticipated the Messiah's coming. And Bartimaeus believes Jesus to be that messianic king. Now, why would he believe this about Jesus? He never witnessed any of Jesus' mighty acts. How is it that he believes Jesus to be the Messiah when he didn't see any of the mighty acts that Jesus performed? He heard about the mighty acts that Jesus performed and concluded that this one must be the Christ. You see, though blind, he saw Jesus more clearly than most. And here we see the truth, that faith doesn't come from seeing the mighty acts. Faith comes from hearing. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. You see, people say that they will believe in Jesus if they only saw his miracles and resurrection. Well, Bartimaeus stands as a witness that they are merely given an excuse to not trust Jesus. You see, Bartimaeus saw no miracle, and yet he believed. Not only did Bartimaeus make a solid confession, he also pled for mercy. He says, have mercy on me. You see, what he knew about Jesus led him to cry out to Jesus in desperation. And beloved, this is instructive for us. What we know about Jesus should lead us to constantly cry out to him, to depend on him, to cling to him and trust in him. Our knowledge of Jesus should not lead us to draw away from him but draw near to him. Look at verse 48. It says, many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. You see, the crowds attempted to silence him, but he responded with persistence. He refused to let the crowds keep him from getting to Jesus. Beloved, if we were in that position, would we have the same response? You see, we live in a time where crowds may not try to stop us from getting to Jesus, but they will surely try to stop us from faithfully preaching Jesus. And the question for us is, how will we respond? How do you respond now? Have you been silenced? Or are you boldly preaching Christ? May we follow Bartimaeus' example and be bold And if we're going to be bold, that boldness doesn't come from ourselves, but it happens through prayer, falling on our knees and praying, begging for the Lord to grant us boldness that we may boldly preach the gospel in the face of danger and persecution. Look at verse 49 on down. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabbi the blind man, said, I want to see. You see, Bartimaeus gets Jesus' attention, calls for him. He comes, asks him what should he do. Jesus knows what Bartimaeus is experiencing. Yet he treats Bartimaeus with dignity. He wants a personal interaction with Bartimaeus. Here we see the Holy One associates with the lowly. The very ones who the crowd wanted to stop, Jesus says, come here, and he talks with them. And Bartimaeus, he makes known he wants to be healed. And he knows that the Messiah has the authority to give sight to the blind. We see that in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. He makes this request and look how Jesus responds. Verse 52, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately, he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. See, Jesus healed this man. Bartimaeus went from physical blindness to physical sight. He got more than what he asked for. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. You see, he was healed both physically and spiritually. And how does Bartimaeus respond? With following Jesus. Now, notice when Jesus says that your faith has saved you, Jesus can say this because Jesus is the object of Bartimaeus' faith. That is how Bartimaeus is saved. You see, salvation is only possible if the object of your faith is capable of saving. And Jesus is the only one who can save. Salvation is in no one else but in his name. And the Son of God, he saves all who trust in him. And with that being said, let me talk to the children and the teens. Y'all, it is good And normal to go to specific people for specific needs. You need food, you go to your parents. You need money, you go to your parents. You need clothes, you go to your parents. (laughs) You need help with homework, you might go to your parents. (laughs) Or you'll certainly go to your teacher. You need salvation, which you do. You go to Jesus. You see, your parents, your teachers, your pastors, these church members, we cannot save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And he offers salvation to you if you trust in him. You trust in him, you will be saved. And I would implore you to trust in him this day if you haven't already, there's no greater gift than to be saved by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. On your way home, talk to your parents about why is it that only Jesus can save sinners. They'd love to have that conversation. You see, beloved, in this passage, we see that only Jesus can save. In this salvation It comes through him suffering and serving us as he died on the cross for our sins. You see, in the movie, Avengers Endgame, Tony's sacrifice saved the day. But it was only just a movie. Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection for our our sins... It brings about an eternal salvation that we know in part now and that we will experience in full when he returns. So may we cling to him and serve him and worship him in response to his grace towards us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your grace that you would send your only Son, that your plan of redemption would be through his suffering and death on our behalf, that he would pay the price for our sins with his own life, shedding his blood that we may be forgiven, that we may know your grace and be reconciled to you. Father, we praise you that you have opened our eyes to behold him and trust in him as you gave us the gift of faith. Father, may we serve him for all of our days. May his service of us be on the forefront of our minds. It may be what compels us to serve others by your grace and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so, beloved, in response to this sermon, it is fitting for us to sing that Christ has ransomed us. It's fitting for us to sing what Jesus Christ did in the gospel as he took on flesh, died for our sins, and resurrected. And then afterwards, it is fitting for us to sing how we should live in light of it. As we sing the hymns, come behold the wondrous mystery and never cease to praise. Let's stand for our final two hymns.